1: Well, welcome back. As we head into hour two, it is a delight and privilege to welcome back to the show our good and dear friend Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. He has a uh, obviously great school. If you are interested in public policy, we recommend we recommend Pepperdine School of Public Policy help make um, the world and your country a better place. He also has a very great. Uh, Twix feed. That's our uh, portmanteau of Twitter and X. Twix uh, at Pete for CA. Is that okay? Can I do that? Is that diminishing of it, Pete? What do you think? Twix. Do you like no, it? No, I
2: like it. I think that's very creative. I, I think I'm going to start using that myself. Uh, we're
1: trying it's to get that. it at Sweep the Nation. If you could do it and you know, maybe mandate it at Pepperdine from here on out, you know, like Chuck Schumer tried to get rid of the dress code. If you could do this <laughs> throughout Pepperdine from now on, the the uh, <laughs> the uh, the, uh, the social media account formerly known as Twitter shall be known as Twix.
2: <laughs> Let the word go forth. Yeah, 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 safe, yeah, right? yeah. Absolutely,
1: you'd be so proud of us here, Pete. We engaged in a piece. You, you guys teach social science. You do it so well. We um, remember Paul Freund, the famous Harvard law professor. He said, the hallmark of so much current social science is the elaborate demonstration of the obvious by methods obscure. Sure. We undertook a test here uh, at the studios. Uh, someone brought in five different boxes of pizza for the staff unannounced. One of them was all vegetarian. Guess which one no one touched? The vegeta- <laughs> the, we, we learned something here, I think. Isn't that good social science research?
2: Yeah, just demonstrating the obvious, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> James Q. Wilson, who yes. was one of the founders of uh, the policy school, said said that on many occasions. That was a, a favorite quotation of his, oh, that well, much social science research was just proving what, uh, what common sense tells us.
1: Good, good, good. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, actually. You and I sometimes... Uh, uh, get uh, get, uh, get a good conversation going on the importance of marriage and poverty and welfare and these kinds of things. I don't know if you saw an interesting piece by, I thought interesting piece by Jason Riley in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago. I guess there's a professor at MIT, I don't know, where you may, Melissa Carney. Yeah. 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 And well, she's, I know of the book. Okay, The Two-Parent Privilege, yeah. 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 And it's all about how uneasy she felt and was made to feel in writing about the import and the, um, the uh, social progress and the social benefits that come with marriage, uh, the article actually mentions some work by who you just said, uh, James Q. Wilson, because a lot of people have written on this. And uh, it's, it's just interesting to me that, uh, that this is such a controversial thing to have to undertake
2: yeah again i it's it's so unfortunate, and the author has noted um that as as a researcher as an academic researcher that even undertaking um this kind of study that she felt that she was putting her own career at risk
1: yes that was her word. Which, she felt she was at great risk, <laughs> yes
2: that's right. right which which speaks to this broader question that you and I have talked a lot about before with this Growing ideological overtaking of academia. One of the the challenges to that to a democratic republic is not just what happens in the inside the classroom with students, but what we don't know about the world when some of our smartest people uh, feel like they can't even research on um, particular topics, and this goes across the disciplines from History through the social sciences, certainly into the increasingly the hard sciences, uh, certainly into psychology. uh, That 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 this really is part and parcel of this larger issue uh, around the ideological capture of academia. It's huge and it's
1: widespread. You may have picked up the American Anthropological Association. When, exactly, I did. You were Another probably thinking of that, right? They couldn't <laughs> do it. They couldn't do a conference on biological, uh, the biological. Uh, why biological sex remained what a necessity or something like that. They got right. so much pushback. There was a recent TED talk given by someone on color and they got Hughes. pushback. Right?
2: Yeah, that was Colman Hughes. Oh, really? Right, a, right, right. A, a big podcaster yeah. uh, talks regularly. On issues of race, he himself is black yeah. and uh, made the argument in a TED Talk that really we should be moving more toward a colorblind society. It's, he's been able to discover that on uh, the TED Talk YouTube channel that they've throttled back uh, access to that video. Um, so, yeah, on a whole array of, of topics – Uh, When smart people are taking steps to engage in either research or discussion of many of these types of issues, uh, you know, there's a lot about the world that we're, in fact, not learning.
1: That's the point that I wanted to drive at with you for a moment, if I could. Are we going to end up just being a dumber nation? I mean, you know, we've talked uh, elaborately uh, use that word again. We've talked uh, at, at length about the importance of academic inquiry and freedom of speech on our campuses, but not just our campuses, the kind of stuff that the faculty are doing. Outside the classroom, as you say, whether it's research and writing, the kind of stuff that takes place in theoretically learned societies like a conference at an associate at an academic association like the American Anthropological Association, the TED Talks. Are are we just is are we going to be dumber? Are we just going to be a dumber country? I think it's very possible. Closing of the right? American I mean, mind, in a sense. Sorry, just, sorry to interrupt.
2: Right. No, yeah. I, I think that's right. I mean, Reagan had that quote about the left, is that, that it's not that they don't know a lot. It's just that so much of what they know isn't true. Right. And, right. and I, I think we're moving into that era when you have someone like the author and researcher on this book, uh, The Two-Parent Privilege, mm-hmm. When she feels like even taking on what even five years ago was really the most straightforward, accepted perspective on the family, uh, when they're not able feel free to even do that, then it really does uh, make one think that there are myriad other topics. You know, you and I have talked about this book uh, that was co-written by a friend of mine, John Shields, who's at Claremont. Uh-huh. And another friend of mine, Josh Dunn, who's now at the University of Tennessee called Passing on the Right. Mm -hmm. And the book was really based on surveys of about 150 conservative faculty from around the country just talking about what their experiences were. And one of the themes that comes out of that book for these conservative faculty was that they knew that if they were going to raise certain topics, whether it was the history of – Uh, communism in the United States or uh, psychology and sexuality, uh, that they knew that the major journals were not going to print this research, and they weren't going to get grants in support of it.
1: Yes, right. It opens up an interesting... Line of thought with regard to a discussion I was having with a friend this morning, and your Reagan quote is actually really quite apt. Can I repeat it? Uh, I think I know it. Yep. The trouble. What, yep. what is it? The trouble with liberals? It's not that they're ignorant. It's just that what they know isn't true. Isn't so. Something right. like that. Okay. Yep. So yep. So, so yeah. So when you and I or any of our friends uh, go out to discuss public policy politics with people who aren't ideologically necessarily on our side who don't agree with us on certain issues, it makes it really hard to have that discussion or teaching um, if it's in a classroom. It makes it really hard because we're not really in the same dictionary. It's almost as if we're not using the same language because they don't even believe what we're telling them is the case. It's that invincible ignorance thing. They can't believe it. It's alien language to them. Yeah?
2: I think that's totally true, but there's, I think, another part to this as well is okay. that once you have this ideological capture of academic research, you also lose the ability to do something that in academia at its best, it does so well, which is to make an argument based on research and be re- willing and ready to accept the slings and arrows of debate and yeah. discussion around it, yeah, right? Yeah. That's what peer review at its best is supposed to do, but now even peer-reviewed journals have been ideologically captured. So somebody even raising a topic and trying to submit it to an academic journal to say, hey, let's take a look at really what happened during the McCarthy era. There's a lot more there than we think. That's not even going to be considered. Right,
1: right, right. Try studying prohibition or restudying prohibition. Right. Pete Peterson, right. let me take a quick commercial break. He of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Leibson Show. Pete Peterson is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. And uh, we're talking about a couple of um, really interesting related things having to do with uh, free thought, uh, Education in America uh, and the education of Americans and what it mm. says right that 's really what it 's about. the universities yep. don 't yep. exist in a in a vacuum, each one kind of has a responsibility to its community and the larger community and you were right to focus Pete, on this uh, element of it that 's not often focused on. We often think about what the students are missing um in these in these in these environs, but it 's really about too that what the faculty can pursue and feels it can pursue um there was a story about a week ago i think you highlighted it too five professors at law school some of them probably all of them your friends some of them mine just announced and their conservative type professors are leaving their law schools to go into think tank world some of that has to do with some of this too i think um and so we're I'm worried that we're gonna see more and more areas of higher education just become narrow and narrow in its ideological spectrum and range in which in that which can be taught. That does emanate certainly down to the students, but it emanates outward to our larger well, community too.
2: Yeah, it absolutely does. And and we should. Uh we've talked many times on your show about what conservative students and even moderate students have to deal with on a number of college campuses, Mm -hmm. the challenges to free speech and free expression. But we also really need to understand that there are, uh, to the surprise of some, uh, conservative faculty and academics. Uh, But even that circle is radiating out to where you might call either centrist or center-left faculty uh who are trying to be true to their pursuit of the truth in their particular discipline are finding it incredibly difficult to do that yeah. and again it doesn't matter whether we're talking about anthropology i'm sure all the people on that particular panel were were probably people of the left oh i'm sure you know, they were i'm sure they that, were that i'm sure because yeah. Yeah. they were simply taking on a subject matter that was Uh, going to be an academically rigorous discussion and a serious one, but that wasn't even going to be possible just because of, again, this ideological capture. And it is something that, just as you say, with these law professors is driving people out of academia and into the think think tank and policy research world. It is one of the reasons why, we have such a vibrant, conservative think tank uh, environment, yeah. and certainly compared to the left. I would argue that that's really one of the reasons is we do have a number of PhDs who would love to sure. teach sure. At, sure. in higher education institutions. You think about, you know, Tom Sowell, right. yeah. <laughs> you know, just come out with his new book at 93. Yeah. He was a professor at UCLA and even... Back before the turn of the century, he was seeing some of these dynamics play out, and it drove him out of UCLA and into into the Hoover Institution. So it is something that is is really difficult for solid researchers, but it's also this loss that's tough to quantify for Americans who are not hearing these perspectives, uh, whether it's in... Uh, books or opinion pieces that was another thing that came up in this book I mentioned before passing on the right with all these interviews of conservative faculty is that they would never write for the Wall Street Journal because they knew that if a piece in the Wall Street Journal appeared on their CV, they were going to have some difficulty uh, either in the, before a tenure committee or uh, submitting a piece to another academic journal where that would appear, On their CV, so really, Americans are losing an incalculable amount because of the ideological overtaking of academia.
1: It's such a huge point. I'm going to return to it in just half a moment, but first, let me ask you if you think that when it came to something like that anthropological association, I get the sense that things are happening with happening with such rapidity. um, It probably came as a shock to those leftist faculty, as you. Yeah, rightly conjectured they were yeah. i think rightly it says that five years ago this wouldn't have probably been an issue any more than maybe 15 years ago the uh, mit professor would have felt that she had to kind of watch her back on writing a book about marriage it, it's right. moving very fast and it's surprising a lot of these
2: people like brett weinstein was surprised yeah absolutely and again it, it, you know if if Many of the people we're talking about have never voted for right. a Republican right. in their life, right? right. right. And uh, as the uh, great Irving Kristol once dubbed the, the definition of a neoconservative as a liberal who's been mugged by reality, that is happening with a lot of academics today yeah. who thought that they were on the right, right. side of history and right. the right the right side of their faculty yeah. lounges, yeah. but are now finding out that that history has moved past them.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you have the dominant view in academia and race, maybe it's collapsing of its own weight in financial or other ways like Boston University. But when you have the dominant Ibram Kendi view that uh, colorblindness is racism, uh, you can't stand with Martin Luther King anymore.
2: Right. And not only can't you not do that, but the the so-called free speech platforms, like TED, had always been, right? That had been a place where certainly for mostly elite audiences but that was a place where some where people came and offered provocative arguments yep. well that's not the case right now right
1: so that's thank you for saying that and coming back to that because that does circle me back to where i said i wanted to which is you were saying and americans are not going to be hearing these perspectives, so it 's not just within the university i don 't think I put too much credibility anymore on nightly news shows, but on some long form okay. interviews, you know you yeah. do interview academics on some on some of our tougher issues in life, and yeah. they're not going to hear these perspectives. TED was a great place to do it. There are other debate or speaking forums that were great places to do it, things like at the 92nd Y or what have you. Yeah, Alan yeah. Dershowitz can't speak there anymore, um, right. for example. And this is this is going to lead to a closing of the American mind, which does get me to this issue of... You know, what do Americans know when we come to a year like we're coming to with political debates and public policy debates through our politics? um, The conversation becomes, as we were saying, quite impossible to have with someone who has never heard our argument. Let me um, let me take a commercial break and pick up on the adjunct point here, because some people don't want to hear it. Some people will never hear it. And some people might think it exists, but knows it has to be suppressed so that mm-hmm. it doesn't gain any currency. There's kind of three or four legs to this problem, and I wondered if you'd let me try and unfold them with you when we come back. Could we do that Pete sounds great i yeah i it raises the question do people want to live in ignorance? Would they rather live with lies than truths in a certain? In a certain way, I was having that discussion with a friend this morning as well. We'll pick up on all of that with Pete Peterson. He's the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. I should say it suffers none of this. It's the antidote to all of this. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, Pete Peterson, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Also his uh, Twix account at Pete. Four C A Pete, the number four C A uh, Pete. With this narrowing of the uh, American mind and the kinds of things that can be discussed and propagated, really uh, through um, through through the public and and through the public means of of teaching and communication by you know uh, academics or uh, scholars, scholarship, learned societies, it, it narrows the ability of things we can know. It narrows the ability of things we can expect our fellow citizens to know. And yet, as I was saying with a friend this morning, I think a lot of people are happy not knowing certain things. I, I actually think a lot of people are content to live in those narrow lanes, zones, or their own truths, if you will. Their truth, not the truth. Um in other words, we've become used to so many lies that people kind of like to live by their own. I guess Plato got into this a little bit with the allegory of the cave. There's a lot I'm throwing at you, but when you talk to someone who doesn't want to believe you because they're happier with their truth, um, it's impossible to change their mind, and I'm wondering if some of this might all be related, or maybe I'm making too much of it. I don't know.
2: Well, I, I think it's a, you know, at least a fair argument to raise. And certainly we have both a media complex and a social media complex that reinforces uh, these kinds of uh, views of the world, which become ever narrower. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And in that, it becomes more and more difficult to understand somebody with a differing point of view. And I think that that's really one of the issues that we're facing in the country. It's obviously goes back to the discussion that we were having before about academia, where there are a number of people in academia that, across the disciplines, have never heard a differing perspective. Correct. And when one is raised, right. their natural reaction is to do all they can to squelch it. Right. Now, I do think, and this goes back to the beginning of our conversation, that when it comes to certain topics, uh, you know, there's that line about that. The, I think it was Twain who said something. There are certain things that are so silly, only an academic right. would believe them right. um, that that when one's family or pocketbook or way of life are put at risk, either in reality or in perception by silly ideas, mm-hmm. by things that you just know in your heart of hearts are lies, mm-hmm that I do think that this is one of the contributing factors to the populist moment that we find ourselves in. You know, um, my dear friend and dearly departed friend Ted McAllister wrote a book, his last book, called, uh, it was essentially a political, uh, cultural history of the United States, called An Unruly People. Mm -hmm. And there is something about the American experience and about the American political culture that at certain At times, I mean, just to put it crassly, just we'll call BS something and we'll not submit to that. Now, did we see too much of that maybe during COVID? Yeah, that was was my
1: example. Go ahead. Right. Right.
2: So I I think some of that. But we also saw reactions to it as well. And we did see different states reacting to different political cultures, making different uh, policy decisions based on those uh, very kind of foundational elements of what the public would stand. And so it. it I, I think that you're right to wonder whether uh, people are too willing to live with lies. But I think we're getting into this kind of hyper-ideological age. We're certainly seeing it in K-12 schools where some of these ideas that really started in the far reaches of academic faculty lounges back in the 70s and 80s, are attempting to be uh, brought into the mainstream culture. And certainly you're seeing some go with that flow. But I, I happen you're, you're to be You're seeing a resistance more... is
1: your point. You're seeing a resistance. Yeah. And I yeah. agree that you do see a resistance. But I think the resistance was a sleeping giant. I wonder... This is a short segment, so I'll be unfair and let you have the last word on it or a further word on it when we come back. My thesis would be... My argument would be... That the resistance is a sleeping giant that has kind of become, has had to become, has had to be forced to be political, like the restaurant mm-hmm. owners in Los Angeles who never were political. Mm-hmm. They kind of had to be forced to, but they're not going to convince or they're not convincing hardened views in this country. The COVID thing is a pretty good example. Yes, different states did different things, but nationally, it, it, it 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 drove us further and further apart, I think. And in those states and inside families and communities of friendship, I think it drove a lot of people apart because they were impervious to the kinds of things Baracharia knew and that Fauci didn't. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Dean Pete Peterson. Pete Peterson, he is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Uh, this is a really interesting—I con- mean, we always do, but this is this is really <laughs> provoking a lot of thoughts, Pete, with me about whether people are more comfortable living uh, with lies or untruths in, in mm. decisive respects. We were just saying you know, uh, right before the break— a lot of people woke up to things and a lot of people pushed back and resisted things in a very healthy way when it came to uh, whether it was some of the COVID policies or some of the goings on in our elementary schools, even at the young grades and the curricula debates. My only only concern about I, I take I, and I take your point on that, that it's a good and healthy thing that we have been waking up and pushing back on those things or, you know, the groups that have been. My only my only caveat is it seems almost as the other side, though, wants to ignore our perspective, doubt it, double down on theirs. We raise these things. We're not of an opinion about what's age appropriate material We're racists, we're we're all kinds of whatever the cataract of pejoratives is they want to use against us are. They're not open to changing their mind. So we may be waking up a certain population. The resistance to the sisters of perpetual ridiculousness or whatever they are, (laughs) right? Right. It it, it got a reaction, but it went forward. (laughs) I mean, it went forward in the name of love, right? (laughs) In the name of love. So I just yeah. I just wonder. I, that's all I'm saying. I, I I it's it seems like there's an unhealthy dose of people that never want to leave the cave and will kill those who did leave the cave and come back to tell them about the truth. That's all.
2: Yeah. No. Again, I I think that you know we're living in interesting times, as the saying goes. <laughs> and um, I, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, continue uh, or or mix metaphors to say that. That I know that there are some that think that our culture is on a bit of a knife's edge. Yeah. Uh, and I, but, I, but what I do think, and I think this conversation is, is helpful for me too, is that the knife itself has now been better understood, which is this quest for truth. Okay. Are we going to be a people that either searches for or allows the search for the quest for truth? Uh, or happiness, right, to to use a word from our founders, or are we not, Yeah, right? Right. Um, And I I, I think that's kind of at least helpful also for me to kind of frame what the debate really is. It it has a variety of different manifestations, several of which you just listed, but it it is really what it comes down to. Um, Are are we going to be a people, as we've been, um, that understands that they're is a truth that there can be and should be a pursuit of happiness, or are we uh, a people that is uh, both ideological and almost utterly self-serving? And um, I think that that, as we look at all these issues that that show in different ways, and and many of us just wonder, uh, and often often frame our understanding of it as a way of saying. Boy, this never would have happened yeah. five years ago. But I, like, well, right.
1: Years I'm ago, so glad right? you said that because I would That's have said – That's the way we identify yes. these issues. I, I'm yeah. so glad you said it. I was just thinking I would have bought your thesis entirely five years ago that we wake up to these things, we kind of adjust, we self-correct because there's nothing like being awakened by reality or whatever the mugged uh, line is from Irving Crystal. Uh, mugged yeah. by reality. You and I have a mutual friend, Russ. He was yeah. telling me the other day – that the cheapest gas you can buy in Southern California is above $6 a gallon. And when you oh, yeah. consider that uh, the average commute in California for work, to and from work, is about 50 miles, he said, this just can't go on. You can't, no. we, we, This cannot go on. And right. yet I'm going to postulate that the number of voters, or the percentage of voters that retreat from the liberal-left Democratic voting patterns... Uh, this November in that region will not move that much. Yeah. That, but, I mean, we you know, don't know, but that's my postulation.
2: Yeah. Well, A, I think we'll see it. Uh, we will see, I think, uh, some contested races here in the state of California, okay. some congressional races that we haven't seen before. Okay. But I also think it's worth, and uh, we've talked about this before, I mean, the migration out of California yeah. is. Yeah. Utterly stunning. Yeah. I mean yeah. people are voting with their feet, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. As to the regime of policies that we're withstanding. But she, and six dollars to me right now, as someone who just filled his tank up yeah. just last night yeah. with the cheapest gas I could find, economy grade at six eighty nine There gallon. you go. And right. Was, economy grade is about seven
1: bucks. That. There you go. You have to think seven at that point.
2: Yeah. And right. so you're you know, I do think that um you know that 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 great quote that from uh, Nixon's economic advisor that things that can't go on forever yeah. don't. Yeah. I I do think that we're seeing especially because it's hitting the pocketbook yeah.
0: of so many.
2: Yeah. Um, that and and we're seeing government institutions fail or at least become ideologically captured. That the Californians are responding. Okay. Uh, by by leaving the state, and I do think we're going to. We're going to lose at least one, if not two, congressional districts as a result when yeah, the next yeah. census comes around in yay seven years.
1: So, uh, speaking of California politics, uh, the passing of Diane Feinstein. Do you have yes. yes? Do you have speculation on who Gavin Newsom might uh, put in in her seat in that seat that she well, served?
2: Newsom has has pulled a Biden yeah. uh, and actually put himself in a box. My yeah. my dear faculty, Joel Fox wrote a great piece just today in the L.A. Daily News about the fact that Newsom has said publicly that he is going to appoint a black woman for this seat. Oh, I didn't know now, that. Okay. Yeah, now this goes back six months or so where maybe he had some thoughts that the senator would be able to finish out her term, um, but he's already on the record of saying that, oh, and uh-huh. and in that, it really does limit one's One's choices for that position. Yeah. So, Karen Bass becomes a possibility, oh, just elected uh, uh, mayor of Los Angeles, yeah. um, and there are um, one or two others that that could be in in the running for this. But again, it goes back to the the problem of identity politics yes, it when does. it comes to representing uh, Californians in this deliberative body and saying that it can only be a certain kind of person due to genetics. It's a disturbing trend and one that now Newsom is, is really going to have to uh, make that decision from the bed that he has made.
1: It's an awful thing to say. But, and I don't know if I will not sleep well because he's saying things like that now or if I will sleep better knowing that that eliminates Adam Schiff. So I'm not sure what yeah. you've done. Well, I'll let you know tomorrow. What you, do you have right. time for just one more quick segment with me, Peter? Yeah, gotta yeah. Run? Sure. Uh, I, I, yeah uh, that would be great because I'd, uh, I'd love to get your sense about a few other things California related on that front. Pete Peterson and I will be right back. Pete uh, Pete Peterson has been our guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Thanks for staying with us the the hour, Pete, as always. Um, Gavin Newsom, you, you brought his name up, and um, he's going to be doing this debate with uh, Ron DeSantis at the end of November. I think it is. Um, it's going to be a very dangerous thing for the White House, I think, to watch, allow the country or to have the country watch such a thing. The president of the United States was here yesterday. It's it's not going well,
0: Pete. <laughs> it's it's wow. it's
1: it's not going well, and wow. and and it's just so obvious that if they want to win, that's the guy they got to use. Can they get to him? Can yep. he get to that? Does he want to get to that? He probably wants to get to that. I don't.
2: Oh, he okay. fell out of the crib okay. wanting to get there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can he? Well, um, you know that is the multi-billion-dollar question. Yeah. Um, one thing I do know is you should not underestimate him. Okay, uh, he's obviously made his way through uh, California politics and had some setbacks along the way, but here he stands as yeah. uh, the leader of the the largest state in the country and and one who really does see his role as governor in an ideological way. I mean, he really has, and this became manifest. Over uh, through COVID, that this that the future of the country is either the California way or the Florida way, right. the Florida slash Texas way, right. and in that he has grounded himself in data. Um, he, he's going to speak in that way. Now I know a number of people who know uh, Governor DeSantis quite well, and. Um, And I was actually at the debate at the Reagan Library uh, this week, Mm -hmm. and I thought what was interesting – DeSantis obviously can, I think, intellectually run circles around our governor. But what he needs to do – and this is as much for the presidential campaign as it is for this debate with Newsom – is he's got to tell more of his personal story because that is where a real – Mismatches. I mean, this is this is in Newsom. This is somebody who's been really supported through relationships with uh, Congresswoman Pelosi and the Getty Trust, and 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 uh, and Governor DeSantis comes from much more hard scrabble beginnings. Military. When he mentioned in the room that he was a military veteran, even in the Reagan Library, even with people that are so politically engaged. I could I could feel a gasp yeah. that people didn't even know he was a veteran. Yeah, yeah. He needs to tell his story better.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's so much more to say. I wish I had another hour with you. Well, we'll do it soon <laughs> enough. All right, Pete. Thank you, you very much. God bless you. Have a great weekend, sir.
0: You too, Seth. All right, boss. We'll talk to you shortly.